Hey, Jude, talk to us today. Teach us something, Lord, through your word, something that we can apply, something that we can take out of here, and, Father, that we can use on Monday to show your good works so that we can magnify your name and people will be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, I think it's on your outline. It says, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage. Then he offers the instruction to us. He says, do it with great patience and careful instruction. In other words, take time to work with people. And then he says, take care to make sure what you're saying is true. He says, with great patience, careful instruction, for the time will come when people will not want to put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Away from truth. Two myths. They will gather people around them who will not teach them about the God who is, but the God that they want Him to be. The God that's not, they're not made in His image, but He is made in their imagination. He says, I want you to be careful. He said, those days are coming. And as we've gone through the book of Jude, we've not only understood that they were coming, but they were pre-appointed and all part of God's plan. To march us towards what we know as the second coming of Christ. What the scripture will call the end times. He says this will happen. It is coming. Be aware of it. And know it's on its way. When we have been going through this book of Jude. Last week he gave us three examples of apostates. Now remember this. An apostate is one who deviates from the true teaching of Scripture and what they teach is known as apostasy. It's a deviation from the Word of God. It's people who have assembled, for lack of a better word, a self-made theology. They've created a God and they've said, this is what God wants you to know and it does not line up with the Word that was revealed. Now listen to me. When you approach the Word and what you're being taught or what you're believing does not line up with the revealed Word, the preserved Word, it's not this Word that needs to change, it's you and I. And so Jude has been telling us to be careful. He's been telling us to be on guard. Well, last week he gave us three examples of people that had gone and deviated from Scripture. He gave us, he said what? Do not go the way of Cain. Do not follow the way of Balaam. Do not follow the way of Korah. And then he gave us five examples of Scripture in Scripture from, from the, that dealt with nature that said this is what apostate teaching is like. And the one that just popped in my head was, he said it's like clouds that don't rain in the middle of a drought. It leaves you empty. It leaves you unrefreshed. Now, this week, following his pattern 
of talking to us and giving us examples, he this week gives us an example of someone who in the middle of apostate teaching, in the middle of apostasy, did not fall to apostasy, did not become a follower of apostasy, but in fact, he was recognized by God as one who walked with him. So go with me to um, verse 14. He says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. Who are these men? These, men's, these men are the apostates. He said, I prophesied, he prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch prophesied about apostates that verse 15 four times told us who behaved ungodly. And then he gives us an example of what these apostates will look like. He says in verse 16, These apostates that Enoch prophesied about are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. So he said apostasy is coming. Earlier I told you about some people who fell to apostasy. He says, now I want to tell you about someone who hasn't fallen to apostasy. And he said, these people are going to do this, and I want to tell you some signs, some things that you can look at to recognize who they are. Grumblers, complainers, smooth words. They walk according to their own lust. In other words, they're living for self. They're men and women who worship a God that they desire, not the God who is. Now, who is Enoch? If you go back to Genesis chapter 5, and you don't have to turn there, just make a note off to the side, Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 gives us some, some lineage. In other words, we can count out that he is the seventh from Adam. And then it says that this man, Enoch, who was the father of Methuselah, walked with God. Now, wouldn't you love that designation? That in the middle of apostasy, in the middle of a time where God is preparing to tell Noah to destroy the earth because of the sin of humanity, one person stood out and it said, he walked with God. Now, you know some other things about him, things that I can just throw off right quick. He walked with God, and the Scripture says that he was no more, meaning he didn't die. He walked so close to God that God looked down, and he said, Man, let me tell you something. You got it going on. You so much have it going on that I'm not going to leave you here in this, and I'm not even going to make you die. I'm just going to reach down there and say, Come here to me. Now listen. That's tight with God. 
And that's what God said to him. He said, I want you to come and I want you to be here with me. He walked with God. He was no more. He dared to be different in a day and a time when walking with God was not only frowned upon, but walking with God was made fun of. And oh, by the way, is it much different today? No. Oh, you can say God. You can say religion. You can spout, I'm spiritual. But if you say that I am a follower of Jesus Christ, people are going to look at you, first of all, like you've lost your mind. Second of all, they're going to look for a way to ridicule ridicule you. And God is saying, back in the Old Testament... I had an Enoch, and I am looking for an Enoch today. Who will walk with me? Who will devote their life to me? Who will give themselves to following me no matter what's going on around them? Now, there's some things you probably don't know about Enoch. And so let's go back to verse 14. He says, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam prophesied he was a preacher he was a preacher who in the middle of an apostate era was standing up and saying behold God says you say well how do you know that well first of all God instructed you to say it it's in here it's protected but also extra-biblical sources, meaning sources that are not in the canon of Scripture, the, the 66 books. There are books there that give us history about people who lived. And there's a book called the Book of Enoch. And in that book, you can find out details about this man's life. But that doesn't itself make it. But here we see that this man, Jude, says that Enoch prophesied behold the Lord he told him that it's a message of judgment look at it it says Enoch was a preacher who behold the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment now can I tell you that at this very moment when I read that word I went back to Jude verse Three, and wanted him to start writing about our common salvation. Man, Jesus died. Jesus loves you. Jesus just says, eat, drink, and be merry, and everything will be okay. But that's not what it says. Yes, there is grace, and God's love extends to the furthest reaches of humanity. No matter who you've been, no matter what you've done, God will redeem you. God can save you. But to also to balance the grace of God, we have to understand also that there is the judgment of God. And it's the judgment of God that makes grace amazing. Because in the middle of God's judgment, in God's holiness, in the fact that God cannot allow sin into His presence... He says that I loved you while you were still a sinner. And I loved you so much that I sent my son to die on the cross. And so if you want to be unpopular today, stand up and say, God will judge the sin of humanity. Because people don't like that. 
Because we're living in an apostate era. We're living in a time when people want their ears tickled. People want to hear, I'll be okay, and oops, I just messed up. Or, oops, if I happen to have offended anyone, I'm sorry. And Enoch did that. Enoch was this person. He was one that would say to us, the judgment of God will come. And you say, well, that's just one man. Are there other places in Scripture that we understand that there is judgment? Amos 4.12 says, prepare to meet thy God. There's going to be a judgment day. The Scripture says it's appointed for a man once to be born, once to die, and then the judgment. So we have to, if we're going to be the bona fide body of Christ, if we're going to be people who are legitimately walking with God, yes, we look at His mercy, and yes, we receive His grace, but we must also understand the consequence or the evacuation of mercy and the evacuation of grace is judgment. And God said that I so love the world that I gave. So now we have Jude who has told us, I'm using as an example of how to live in the middle of apostate times, I'm giving you the example of Enoch. Well, what is the substance of this message? You can follow me on your outline. What is the substance of this message, Jude's message to us, and the example that he's given us in Enoch? The first thing it says again, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, preached about these men, these men who are apostates. Saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them. And I'll expound on that in just a moment. So what did Enoch prophesy to? Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. This is not a reference to the first coming of Christ. This is not a reference to the baby that was born in a manger and is cooing and swaddling clothes. No, this is a reference to the righteous judge, the one who will come in all of his glory. The Revelation says, riding the white horse with his army with him. He says, Jesus, the one that was born to Mary and Joseph. Jesus, the one who went to the cross. The Jesus, the one who died. The Jesus, the one who went into the tomb, rose again and ascended to heaven, is coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming in judgment. And when he comes back in judgment, it'll be too late. You need to know him now. You need to follow him now. You need to trust him in this moment. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 predicted his first and his second coming. And Jesus wanted people to know that. And in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, when he read part of that prophecy over in Matthew chapter 4, he ended it and said, and this prophecy has been fulfilled in your ears but he didn't read to us the rest of Isaiah 61 because the rest of it has not happened yet it will come he will say it is fulfilled but at that moment when he was with his followers he stopped and he said to this point it's done so here's Enoch and his words have said far more than we could imagine he said the Lord comes with ten thousands his second coming to be judge. John 14, 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. And he says, If I'm leaving 
I'm going to prepare a place for you. But I will come again to receive you to myself. Ladies and gentlemen, you must today, if you do not believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, you must now begin to say, Lord, expand my belief. Lord, increase my faith. Lord, give me the ability to accept that you came the first time and you were laying in a manger, but you're coming the second time riding a white horse and you will be the judge. God, give us that gift. Grant us that ability. Give us that knowledge to understand it. The apostles began to know this. They began to understand it. And they began to let people know the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Now you imagine this. For us today, 2,000 years removed from walking on earth with Jesus, there were these disciples who left their nets, left their jobs, were disowned by society to become a follower of Christ. And they had followed him for three years. And then it says on one fateful night that they were gathered in a room. Jesus had already been talking, but he said, now's the time. And I'm going to leave you. And this one that they worship, this one that they adore, this one that they had begun to follow, says, one of you is going to betray me. And I've got to die. And I'm going to leave. And I'm going to send a helper. When they were with him on the day of ascension... And the angels on his right and his left, they spoke. Just as he's leaving now, he's going to return. Can you imagine the joy that welled up in them? I remember when Gail and I moved to Texas. And I was a mama's boy. And I cried all the way to Texas as I was preparing this. (laughs) Sorry, baby. Um, She said, what have I done? He's a lunatic. Um, (laughs) um, I remember turning around and looking at my daddy and I said, I'm going to come back. I'm not gone forever. I'm coming back. And I remembered when I was studying, I remembered him smiling. And he said, I know you will. Now, I really couldn't make that promise. I didn't have the ability to make that promise. But in my heart, if God allowed, I was going back home just as soon as I could. Well, now, here are these followers of Christ who have given everything to be his. And he says, I'm coming back. Can't you imagine that they left that Mount of Transfiguration and they began to run back to all the other followers? He's coming back. He's coming back. And what was doom and gloom is now all of a sudden a big shout of excitement. He's coming back. He has not left me. We know we're going to be in trouble for a little while. We know we're going to have to endure. We know we're going to have to walk. But Jesus is coming back. And it became the rallying cry of the church. Maranatha, 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 Maranatha. The Lord comes again. And all throughout Scripture, in the New Testament, you hear the people saying, the suffering that we will endure for this moment will be nothing compared to what we gain when Maranatha, Maranatha, when Jesus comes back. He's coming back to get them. He will return. He's coming back. But notice it says, when He comes back, In verse 14, 
Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands. You see that? It's not ten thousand. It's ten thousands. In other words, it means a myriad of people. It means an, an inestimable, inestimable. You can't estimate it. Should have just wrote that. Would have been a lot easier. Number of his holy ones. And you say, is that angels? Let's go back and read. You see that word saints? Angels can't be saints. Angels are created beings that will never experience the joy of forgiveness of sin. That is for us. And it says that we will come back with Him. Maranatha. The Lord comes. Maranatha. And I'm going to be with Him. It says that they will come back. Now there's two phases to the second coming. The first phase of the second coming is the rapture. Jesus will come for his saints. Now I want to ask you a question. Who's a saint? Are you a saint? Don't think Catholicism with me this moment. Where you have to have a documented miracle. No, the miracle has been documented. Jesus died on the cross and he gave you his life. And he said, because you have accepted me, you are born again. You are the miracle. I can't believe y'all can sit still and quiet in that. That blows me away. That blows me away that you who were bound by sin. And Jesus said, while you were a sinner, I loved you. And he says, I'm coming to get you. And you're going to be with me for all of eternity. He says, I'm coming for you. Now the second part of the rapture is not only is Jesus coming for his saints, that's the rapture, but Jesus is coming with his saints. That's the revelation. That's the revelation that he is the king, he is the judge, he is the righteous one. And he says, you're invited to the party. You're invited to the party. Revelation 19.11 says, And I saw heaven, and it opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him, called faithful and true, that's Jesus, and in righteousness does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his hands were many, head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. I believe there will be angels there. But not exclusively angels. Because we will be there. He says there is a second coming. Jesus is going to come back. Can we really believe that Jesus will come the second time? I think, yes, we can. Because if you look at all the prophecies predicting the first coming of Christ, and there are over 330 of them, every one of them has been meticulously fulfilled. Every one of them. 
And the best indication of what God's going to do is to look back and see what God has done. And God took the time to fulfill 330 prophecies about the first coming of Christ. And he is in the middle of fulfilling the second prophecy, the prophecies about the second coming of Christ. God loves details. Go read Psalm 139 about how he made you. He loves details. He's coming back. So, in this verse, using Enoch as an example, using his sermon, Jude says, this is what's going to happen. Jesus will come back. Why will Jesus come back? Verse 15, he's coming to judge, to execute judgment upon all. Who's the judge? It's Jesus. John 5.22 says, the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgments unto the Son. Jesus is the judge. Acts 17.31, God has declared a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has appointed. Who did he appoint? Say it with me. Jesus. Say it again. He loves to hear his name. Jesus. He is the judge. And he's the one that's coming back. He's coming back for certain. And he's coming back for a reason. And that's to judge humanity. The resurrection tells us. And he's coming to to exact judgment upon all and to convict all that are ungodly among them. All of their ungodly deeds. He's coming to judge those who have not surrendered. Hear me. There are two ways to face God. Only two ways to face God. You face God in sin, and if you face God in sin, then you will be convicted by the judgment of God, the righteous and errant judge of the universe. You will be convicted by Him in judgment for sin and eternally separated. You can face Him in sin, or you can face Him in Christ. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. And nevertheless, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If you face judgment in sin, God sees you. Bad choice. If you face judgment in Christ then God sees Jesus, and Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He is the one who gave it all, the ransom for many. You can really just say the ransom for all. And so, there will be a day of judgment. That's why Jesus is coming back. For those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be an account of our deeds. For those who do not, it will be an account for their sins. You do not want to face judgment apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus. Our judgment has been taken care of by Christ. I don't think we can go by or past that in verse 15... He says the word ungodly four times. He will convict them. It means to prove and establish guilt beyond question. 
there will be no defense for those who are apart from Christ. Let's do this. We got, I think we've got enough time today. Let's go to the book of Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. In verse 9 of Romans chapter 3, the last part of it says, For we have previously charged both the Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Now drop back down, drop down now to verse 12. In verse 12 it reads to us, They have all turned aside. They've gone their way. They're under sin and they're going their own way. With their tongues they have practiced, I'm sorry, um, they have turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. What he said is, so far everybody's under sin and that there is not one that is good. Now, drop down with me to verse 19. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. If you break that down into the original language, that when we face that day of judgment, that when people who do not stand before God in Christ and they stand before God in sin, they're going to look and say, admit that yes, I am a sinner, yes, I went my own way, and yes, I'm guilty without excuse. That's why the scripture will say that there will come a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, to the glory of God the Father is that I admit that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for my sin. I admit that I needed it, and on my own I couldn't do it. And Jude, who is trying to battle this apostasy, is telling us that apart from Christ we're all guilty. Now listen to me. Guilt is painful. But guilt that leads to conviction is good. You need to hear that. It's painful, but it's good. Because when I am living, you are living under guilt that leads to conviction. We recognize who we are apart from the Lord Jesus. And the purpose of that is discipline. And the, person of dis the purpose of discipline is to guide us back to the path of Scripture, away from apostasy, away from apostate teachers, those who are tickling our ears, and to go back to those who are telling us the truth because the Scripture says wide is one way and narrow is the other way, and it says that it's easier sometimes to do this than the other thing. Because man, Satan will, will deceive us. And he will make us think, oh, you got it going on. And no, when you, when you lay it over the litmus test of Scripture, you don't. You're over here. And Jude is saying, come back, come back. Because Maranatha, Maranatha. And when he comes back this time, he's coming back. As judge. What's he going to judge? Let's look back at that. 
to convict all who are godly their ungodly deeds which they have committed in godly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I was at a gathering recently. And at that gathering, the conversation turned to God. And a person that was standing in the group said, I don't need Jesus, I am Jesus. I ain't going to lie, I stepped back. And I doubt anybody in this room would say that. But I want to ask you a question, how many times do you live that? How many times do we live it by our actions when we say, God, I'm not going to bow to who you are and what you've commanded to me to be, but I'm going to live my way. You see, those words are offensive. But those actions, little subtleties. Little vices that we hold on to and justify. Vices of commission, this is what I do. And vices of omission, this is what I will not do. And he says, that's what's going to be judged. Now, for those that are in Christ, it's it's going to be an account, again, of the deeds that you've done. It's going to be an examination. It's going to be a fruit inspection, if you will. He says that's why he's coming. Verse 16. So what is the subject of Jude's prophecy? Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back to judge. And then he says that here are some predictors. Here are things that you can look at. To see. He says, these are what you don't want to be. And you say, well, what if at the end of this message I have been that? Does that mean that I'm an apostate without hope? No, you live in the church age. And in the church age, there's grace. And in the middle of grace, you can fall to your knees and say, Father, forgive me, for this is the life that I'm living and this is what I've done. And will you cleanse me from all unrighteousness? And he says, if you'll confess your sin, that he will cleanse you. From unrighteousness. So what does he say? These. Who are these? These apostates. They're grumblers. They're complainers. And then he says. Walking according to their own lust. They mouth great swelling words. Flattering people to gain advantage. That's the apostate's disposition. If you and I become constant, habitual, unrepentant grumblers and complainers against God in the life that God has for us, he says that you're living like an apostate does. Do you remember when we were in the um, studying the book of Numbers 11 and we said that, that God, one of the wilderness behaviors, For the children of Israel, one of the things that caused them to stay in the wilderness was that they murmured 
And we said murmur is one of those words. It's an automatopoeia. It's the way you say it makes you understand what it is. And so we said murmur, 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 and you begin to understand what that is. He says, just as this was a behavior that kept the children of Israel in the wilderness and did not let them see the promised land. In other words, the victory and the fullness that God had for them. He said, in the age of apostasy, there will also be murmuring and complaining, and it will keep you from experiencing seeing the fullness of God. He said, so be careful if you catch yourself there. Now, that doesn't mean that you never have a moment where you said, boy, that stinks. But he's talking about a disposition. He's talking about a lifestyle. He's talking about the habitual. You know, there are some people you'll never satisfy. I could play sweet hour of prayers, a sermon buffer, and they go, that's too slow. I could play Hey Jude, and they say, oh, that's the Beatles. And I'm like, so give me one in between. What can I do? And you could change it a thousand times, and it'll never be enough. It's a disposition. It's a behavior. It is a, an identifier of their life. 1 Corinthians 10.10 says, Do not murmur as some of them murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. It's apostate behavior. Philippians 2.14 says, Do things, all things, without murmuring and disputing. Don't be a griper. One Greek writer said this, you are satis- uh, the definition of a murmurer, a complainer, is that you are satisfied by nothing that befalls you. That's apostate behavior. He says, don't be that. Then he says, another characteristic of them is they are walking after their own lust. That word means strong passions. Yes, it includes sexual lust inappropriate sexual mind activity behavior but it goes to be much more than that it includes anything that you set your affections on so much so that no matter what God says or desires for you you will pursue that thing so you can lust sexually yes you can lust for money you can lust for attention you can lust for relationship you can lust for and da 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 things you go on and on and on he says that that is an apostate behavior So if you're grumbling and complaining, that's apostate behavior. Watch out for it. He says that if you begin to lust after something more than you desire after God, that is apostate behavior. And you see, once we fall into that behavior, then we have to create a system that will justify that behavior. And then we're not just satisfied that we have that behavior because misery loves company. Now we got to spread it and we got to get people to follow us. And hence you have apostasy. He says, watch out for it. And the other thing he says is another characteristic. Their mouth speaks great swelling words. You flatter others for your own advantage. They make up things. That's apostate behavior. And the scripture says, do not be deceived. Judgment is coming. Today the great question is, what will you do with Jesus? Because what you do with Jesus today will answer the second great question. 
is on that day, what will Jesus do with you? What I do with Jesus today will determine what Jesus does with me in the great judgment. Will you stand before him in sin? Or will you stand before him in Christ?